Well, good morning. If we haven't had the opportunity to meet yet, my name is Terry Lee. I'm the pastor here. I want you to know that whether you are a first-time guest or you call the Oaks Church home, I'm really glad that you are here to worship with us. Uh, if you are a first-time guest, I want you to know that we have a connect bag that we would love for you to grab as you walk out today. It's just got a couple gifts from our church to you to let you know that we're so thankful that you joined us this morning. Uh, we're going to be in Mark chapter 12. So you can go ahead and find Mark chapter 12 as we're continuing our study through the book of Mark. It is June 19th, which means this is a day that we celebrate Juneteenth, uh, a day of justice for, um, for our, our country and really what it means to acknowledge all people created in God's image. It's also Father's Day, uh, which is, you know, for, for many people, it's, it's a day of celebration. I also recognize that it is a day that can be difficult because maybe um, you, you want to be a father and you're not, or uh, because you've lost a father or grandfather. And so with that in mind, we ultimately look to God, who is Father. Uh, he's Father to the fatherless, uh, for those who perhaps don't know their dad or have a difficult relationship with their dad. For those of us who are dads, who feel the weight of being an imperfect father at times, we look to God, who is a good father, who is gracious, who gives us the Holy Spirit, so ultimately we can walk in a way that is honoring to him. And so we celebrate, we look to God as father, and we look to his word to hear from him as he teaches us. As we get to Mark 12, what we're going to find is a really important question. I was thinking about this uh, yesterday because I'm officiating a wedding after uh, church this afternoon, and so yesterday we had the rehearsal. And there are so many questions that go into preparing for a wedding, specifically the wedding ceremony. And so I'm asking, you know, the bride, hey, where do you want everybody to stand? Uh, you know, which, which vows do you want to say? Do you want the more traditional ones? Are you guys writing your own? Uh, you know, when do you want people to walk in? Do you want the, all the groomsmen to come up on one side? Or do you want them to walk through with the bridesmaids? And the There's all of these questions. And yet today, whenever we're actually in the ceremony, the most important question will come. There will be a point in time that I look at the groom, and I look at the bride, and they say their vows, and, and I say, do you, speaking to the, to, the, to the woman, do you take this man as your husband uh, for richer, for poorer, for better, for worse, in sickness and in health until death do you part? And they say, I do, because that's the most important question that can be asked, and that is the most important question that can be asked and the most important answer that can be given in that moment. Well, today in Mark 12, there is a scribe that comes to Jesus, and he asks the most important question that could be asked. And we would argue that Jesus gives him perhaps the most important answer that could be given. He says, what is the greatest commandment? Now, of all of the commands of God, which one matters most? Which one reflects the heart of God the most? And at the heart of his question is, what does it take to have a relationship with God? What does it mean to understand the character of God? How do I know that I know that I am right with God? In our time together, as we look at Mark chapter 12, we will see this point emerge, that I should love God and love other people because God first loved me. As we look at Mark 12, verses 28 through 34, the command would be that I should love God and I should love other people. 
Unless we think that we, we are somehow justified by our own works or our own effort, we can't forget that that only is in response to changed heart, in response to the grace that is first given by God first loving us. And so with that being said, let's look at Mark chapter 12, verses 28 through 34. God's word says this. And one of the scribes came up and heard them dispute with one another. And seeing that he answered them well, he saw that Jesus answered all of the other people that have been asking questions well. This man asked him, which commandment is the most important of all? And Jesus answered, the most important is here, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. The second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. And the scribe said to him, you are right, teacher. You have truly said that he is one and there is no other besides him. And to love him with all the heart and with all the understanding and with all the strength and to love one's neighbor as oneself is much more than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. And when Jesus saw that he answered wisely, he said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. And after that, no one dared to ask him any more questions. Now let's stop right there. The first thing that we are going to see is this question that is asked. And at the heart of this question is, what does God care about? What does God care about? What is the most important command that is given according to Jesus. Now, it shouldn't surprise us whenever we get to this point in Mark chapter 12 that we encounter another question because we've seen that for the past few weeks. At first, it was the Sanhedrin who were trying to trap Jesus in this question about his authority. After that, it was the Herodians and the Pharisees who were trying to you know, throw Jesus off with this political question about taxes. Last week, we saw the Sadducees we're asking a question about resurrection and heaven, all kind of geared toward trapping Jesus. And now another question comes. But this has a different tone. It's almost as if all of the other questions were an attack. But this guy seems spiritually hungry. He seems like he genuinely wants to know. Now, of all of God's commands, which one is, is primary? Uh, which one matters the most? It's as if he senses the reality that he's standing in the presence of God. He's heard him answer well. And so here he comes and he asks the question, which command is most important? I want you to see here just the accessibility of Jesus. And this should be a comfort to you, that you can approach Jesus with your questions you can come with the burdens or perhaps uh, the confusion, a desire for clarity, and you can approach Jesus. You can hear him speak through his word. And so this man approaches Jesus. Now we find out that this man is a scribe, which means he studied the law a lot. Uh, Matthew says that he was one of the Pharisees in his gospel account. So what do we know about this man? Well, we know that he probably really enjoyed hearing Jesus explain the concept of heaven and the resurrection to the Sadducees. Uh, because, you know, he was kind of, would have been considered a, an opponent of the group of the Sadducees. And last week, Jesus proved to the Sadducees that, that heaven existed, that the resurrection was real. And so this man hears Jesus answering well, and he steps a little bit closer as they're in the temple. And we also know that he is a, a man who studied the law. He was a scribe. So he would have been really well informed with the law. And so he asks what is the most important command that God has given? 
And we can't blame him because in the Old Testament, there are 613 commands of God. If you think about it, if you were giving a, given a study guide for a test, it would make sense to, to maybe ask the teacher, hey, is, is there like a section of these, these that are most important that I really need to focus on? He's saying, of all 613 commands, which one would you say is most important? Perhaps is at the top of the priority list. Uh, which, which one kind of encapsulates maybe all the other commands? And this was a, a popular question that was asked of rabbis in history. There was actually a, a story of a rabbi that lived about 40 years before Jesus was incarnated. And uh, he, he was Rabbi Hillel. And there's a story of a Gentile who was not a Jew who comes to this rabbi. And, and he said, I will become a, a Jewish convert if you can explain the entirety of the law to me while I stand on one foot. And it was kind of a tongue-in-cheek way to say, okay, just give me the cliff notes. Give me the highlight version. I, I, will, I will be a person of God if you can kind of summarize this for me in a couple moments. Uh, there were other rabbis who were asked this same question, and yet no one gives an answer as wise as Christ because he is God, speaking with the authority of God to man. And so Jesus answers this question here. He's going to answer this question in a way that, that submits a theological truth about who God is and the way that we respond to that and the very way that we live it out. I think it's interesting that people who, who may not phrase this question in the same way are still asking this question every day. What does God care about most? Or perhaps people just assume that they know what God cares about. They assume that they know the heart of God and they shape their life around it. Here we come to scripture knowing that God has an answer. He points us to himself and teaches us how to live in light of who he is. Here's where we see the second thing in this passage, that you are commanded to love God and love others. Jesus is going to give an answer and he's going to say, that the primary command is that we love God and that we love others. He's about to summarize the entirety of God's law into these two phrases, to love God and to love others. Now imagine Jesus in the temple, whenever he begins to answer this question and says these words in verse 29. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Now, to the Jewish ear, they would have immediately recognized that that was a familiar phrase. Why? Because we just read it in Deuteronomy 6. It was the Shema, which means hear. It's just kind of a summary word. And this would have been such a familiar phrase because the average Jew would have recited Deuteronomy 6 every morning and every evening. They would have said this consistency, consistently, hear, O Israel. The Lord our God, the Lord is one. And flowing out of that is this command to love God with all of your being. Now, I know that sometimes whenever we get to a passage of scripture like this and we hear that there are commands to obey, we want to jump straight down into verse 30. All right, tell me how to love God. Tell me how to love God with all my heart, with all my soul, with all of my mind, with all my strength. Tell me how to love other people. But if we jump straight into verse 30, and don't realize that Jesus begins the answer of this question with verse 29, then we completely miss what is going on here. We miss the graciousness of God. We miss the covenant relationship that God gives his people that in turn enables them 
to have affections and desires that long to obey these commands, uh, the ability to carry these things out. And so Jesus begins, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Why is that so important? Well, we often say at the Oaks that the imperatives, the commands, flow from the indicative, what is already true, the stated fact. Uh, A simpler way maybe to put that is what we do flows from what God has already Remember the context of Deuteronomy 6? What has happened? Well, God heard the cries of his people as they were under the oppression of the Egyptian pharaoh. He heard their cries, and he raised up a leader in Moses who would, who would call his people out, who would be the mouthpiece of God among them, who would lead them through the promised land. Uh, through the wilderness and ultimately into the promised land. They experienced the rescue and redemption of God that ultimately flowed from a covenant relationship with God. Whenever you read verse 29, you see that God is referring to himself as Lord, as Yahweh, the covenant God. Whenever he says, hear, O Israel. Israel is not simply a title of a people group. It is a reminder of the way that God loved his people, that that there was a man that that God chose and made a promise to named Abraham, and he said, I will give you a great people. I will give you a great land, and there will be one who is from your descendants that will go and bless all the families of the earth. And Abraham had a son named Isaac, and Isaac had two sons named Jacob and Esau. And if you know the story of Jacob, You know that there was a moment in which he wrestled with God. And what was his name changed to after he wrestled with God? It was changed to Israel. And then Israel had 12 sons. And out of those 12 sons became 12 tribes. And those 12 tribes represented God's covenant people. That through adversity and their failure and their sin, God was always faithful again and again. And so whenever we hear the Shema and when we read these words of Jesus, he is saying, hear, O Israel. Hear those who have been rescued from the oppression of sin and the slavery it once bound you in. Hear those who know God by name as both creator, redeemer, and father. Hear those who have been welcomed by his grace and his mercy, who have been given a new identity. Oh, Israel, the Lord is our God because we have a personal relationship with him. And this Lord is one. He has proved that he is the only God. He put the pantheon of Egyptian gods to complete shame. And he does the same today with the gods of this world. He proves that he is God alone. He is the one true God. There is no satisfaction in anyone other than him. And there is no one that can compete with his glory. So based upon the personal relationship that we have with God, his grace, his mercy, his pursuit of us, based upon the character of God, who he is, we're invited to love him. We're commanded to love him and to love other people. If you miss verse 29, then you're just given a list of rules without any context as to why our God is so worthy of our obedience. And the command to hear here is not just to kind of pick up this audible noise. No, it's 
Like whenever I'm leaving for, for work in the morning and I, I look at our two boys and I say, Brooks and Charlie, listen to your mom today. Uh, what, what I'm not saying is just make sure that you can hear her as you're kind of doing your own thing. No, I'm saying, listen, hear what she's saying and, and obey it. That's what the Shema is saying here. Hear God in, in such a way that it, that it changes your life, that you live in, in complete understanding that you have been purchased by this God and you now belong to him. Oh, what a comfort that is, that he is the Lord our God. It almost reminds me of that scene in, in Toy Story whenever, you know, uh, Woody's kind of all, all bummed out and then he looks at the bottom of his boot and he sees Andy's name written there. And he's like, oh, yeah, I, I have belonging. I, I have purpose. There's someone that cares about me. Whenever we hear the Shema recited, we are reminded that our God has pursued us. Uh, the greatest act of his love, his redemption was made known through the cross, that he would make us his own. And so after the relationship is established, the commands are given. And unless you think that that, that is just happening here, I want to remind you that this is the exact same way that the, the Ten Commandments were given. Uh, look at Exodus 20, 1 and 2. It begins with these words, and God spoke all these words saying, I am the Lord, your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. The act of redemption, the establishing of relationship, God's mercy and grace becomes the foundation in which these commands flow from. And so then God gives the first command, both in Deuteronomy and here in verse 30. He says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. Now here we see that, that we are commanded to love God. And we're going to get into the specifics of what that looks like. But as I read this, I was reminded of 1 John 4, 19. Uh, that shows that we love God because he first loved us. That we are able to love God, commanded to love God because he initiated. We are able to hear because God is the one who has already started the conversation in speaking. In the same way that Adam prayed, that as the moon reflects the radiance of the sun, we reflect the love of God that he has first shown to us. Ultimately, through the cross of Christ, through sustaining us daily, through our saving, and through the persevering faith that he gives us. Because God didn't hold anything back from us. We should not hold anything back in our love for him. But what does it look like to love God? Well, here, uh, Jesus gives us kind of four uh, ways to explain or to, to define the way that we love God. He says, love God with all of your heart and with all of your soul and with all of your mind and with all of your strength. Now, we could be tempted here to maybe divide, to divide the person into four parts, but I don't think that's what's taking place here. He's simply describing different emphases of the way that we love God with our whole being. Uh, the important word that comes before every single one of those words is all. Love God completely with your whole self, with the entirety of who you are. And then he, he describes these four ways that we love God. We should love God with all of our heart. Sometimes it, we can think of the heart just in an emotive sense. Uh, so it's kind of where all of the feelings are. But whenever you think about the word heart from a biblical standpoint, it's really kind of the control center of, of who you are, uh, the way that you think, the way that you 
act, who you are, is kind of bound up in your heart. Not only that, he, he tells us to love our God with our entire soul. This is the, the entire human life, the essence of who you are, especially as, as it relates spiritually to God, your, your whole soul. Then third, he, he tells us to love the Lord our God with all of our mind. This is the aspect of you that reasons, thinks, that comprehends truth, to love God with your entire mind. And, and fourth and finally, he says to love God with all of your might, your strength. Uh, this is the, what motivates your love for God, uh, to love God with all that is in you with great zeal, this driving force that enables you to love God. Now, it, for, for a moment, we can think, as God commands us to love him, and we desire to love God, is, is it almost selfish for God to tell us to love him with, with our entirety? As, as God commands that, what, is, what does that make us think of who God is? We must be reminded of the character of God that to fixate on anything other than God, for God to give us any other command would actually be to point us to something lesser. It is not selfish. The most loving thing that God could ever do is command us to love him because to love anything else would be to love something lesser than what is supremely good. He who is the highest good, he who is the only source of good, it would be to love something less important, love something less glorious, less satisfying, less joy-producing, less assurance-giving. And so we love God because there is no one who is more worthy of our love. There is no one greater than we can love. Our chief end is to love God, to glorify God, and to enjoy Him forever. So how do we love God with these four categories in mind? Well, first, it is to repent of, of the wrong loves. We often love things that are not God. It was John Calvin who said that the, the human heart is a factory of idols. We often love the wrong things. If the greatest command that is given is that we would love God, then the deduction could perhaps be that one of the greatest or most heinous sins would be to love something other than God. And so we, we come to God admitting that sometimes we love the wrong things. We repent. It's not a small thing. It's not a slip-up. It's not a mistake. It is a sin that grieves the heart of God. Whenever we think about God, we, we love God by making Him our, our first priority, by loving Him exclusively, and, and by loving Him in a way that places Him as central in our life. That our love for God, in fact, shapes the love of everything else. If you think about loving God centrally and almost view your life as, as a wheel on a bicycle that kind of has a hub in the middle and spokes all the way around the rim, I think sometimes we can, we can make God a priority, one of our priorities, and yet we're central in our lives. We're kind of the hub in the middle of the wheel, and then God is one of the spokes that kind of goes out. And so we have, we have God, we have work, we have family, we have hobbies, uh, fitness, finances, whatever it is. 
And so we're kind of in the center and we're managing all of these things because we're central and God is kind of one of the spokes out there that we give priority to. And yet to love God is to remove ourselves from the center and to put God in the center. To say that my relationship with God, my love for God is now central and affects the way that I view my work, my hobbies, the way that I steward my body and my health, the way that I live in my family. Now with God at the center, with my love for him now driving every other aspect of my being, I desire to be a godly husband, a godly dad, a godly employee. And my love for Christ shapes the way that I, I view my money and now that I wanna steward my finances in a godly way. That loving God now spreads throughout every area of your life as we recognize that because he first loved us, we now love him with all of our being. I know that sometimes it can be difficult to kind of assess the different parts of, of your heart. What does it mean to, to love God with, with my entire being? Uh, there is a, a diagram that was really helpful that was introduced to me during seminary by one of my professors, David Pierre, and, or Jeremy Pierre, and he's a counseling professor. And he wrote this book called The Dynamic Heart in Daily Life. And he uses these categories that we find here in Mark 12 to consider these three dynamics of the heart, these three emphases, these three components of the whole heart that are our cognition, so what we think, our affections, what we feel, and our volitions, what we do, what we will, what we act upon. Uh, the important thing about each of these is it kind of gathers those, those loves that Jesus gives us here and helps us categorize them in the way that we view God, the way that we love God. What does it mean to love God with our cognition, to love God with our mind? It's to learn about God. It's to know God's word. It is to know who he is. It's to understand his character. We do that through the scripture. We do that through, through studying good books that are based upon the Bible or, or to listening to sound teaching. This is so important, not only because you can believe the thing. It's possible for, for us to even believe the lies of Satan when it comes to the way that we view ourselves or we view other people or the way that our worldview is shaped. So to love God with our mind means to know the right things about God, to believe the right things about God and the world that he's created. How do we love God with all of our affections? This is the aspect of you that deals with your desires, your value system, your feeling, your emoting. You see, the wrong desires for the wrong things lead us into idolatry. It is to love the wrong things. It's one of our affections are disoriented. So we prayerfully ask God, conform my desires Make me to desire what is right, even whenever I fall into sin, even whenever I choose sin over obedience. Think about the way that perhaps you respond to an unexpected blessing. Whenever, whenever you experience happiness, that, that emotion, is your first response to praise God with that affection. Whenever you face pain or suffering or disappointment, is your first response as you, as you feel that emotion to trust God, to run to him in prayer. We can love God with our affections, with our heart. Third and finally, volition. We love God with our strength. This is the aspect of you that deals with the will, with acting, with deciding, with intending, with committing to certain things or people or actions. 
You see, whenever we choose to trust God, it is always an act of faith. This means we submit our will to God. We serve. We give toward him and the things that make much of him. We avoid sin. We love God by doing these things. Now, whenever we love God with our volition, sometimes it means that we won't fully understand his commands, and yet, yet I'm obedient to it. Uh, whenever we love God and we say, you know, I'm, I'm loving God with the volition that he's given me, all the strength that he is giving me, sometimes I might not feel like it. Sometimes on a Sunday morning, I might not feel like driving to church, or I might not feel like opening up the scriptures, and yet, because I'm going to obey God, even when my affections don't feel like it, whenever my heart feels cold, I'm going to shove it into the flame of God's word that my affections would be softened toward him and that my mind would learn deeper truths about him. You see these three aspects, components of who we are, are interdependent. They actually strengthen one another when one is lacking in love for God. This is what it means to understand the whole person. If you want to understand how to change, how, how to how to weed sin out of your life as you pursue Christ, as you help other people. It is to understand these components of the heart in the way that God has designed us. And think about for a moment, somebody that says, you know, I'm so busy right now that I feel like I really don't have time to love God. Is that a matter of kind of their cognition and being, you know, kind of askew in their love for God? Is that a matter of their affections or Is that a matter of their volition? Let's say that somebody said that, or maybe you feel that. I'm just just too busy to love God. Well, if it's a matter of cognition, then you would say, do you feel like at this moment your identity is wrapped up in what you accomplish? And maybe you've lost sight of what God has actually accomplished and the value that is bestowed upon you in Christ. It could be that there's just thinking that's wrong. And so there's not a desire to be with Christ. It could be a matter of, of affection. Uh, they're saying, you know what, I, I just don't really feel like, like studying my Bible right now or making time for the Lord. Uh, it could be that they need to reorder their values. Is it a matter of volition? You'd say, look, you know that, that God's word is good. You know how to study scripture. Uh, your affection is there. You desire to do this. Maybe the, the volitional component is just scheduling a time to, in, your, in your day to meet with God and to set open the scriptures. Maybe it's more of a time management issue than anything. It's to set our entire heart before God and say, how do I love you with all of my being? And I think probably some of us are more prone to love God well in some areas than others. So perhaps you love studying theological concepts and yet... Volition is an area that's lacking in that, you know, it, it's been a while since you've actually shared any of those concepts with someone who doesn't know Christ. And so we'd say, yeah, grow in, in these deep understandings of who God is, and yet put it into practice. Let that stir your affections for God in prayer. Some of us are, are really good at serving, right? We're almost like Martha in the story of Mary and Martha. It's, I'm all volition, right? I, I want to do, I want to give, I want to meet the need. And yet we'd say, Perhaps you need to spend some time kind of grounding a a deep understanding of who God says he is in his word so that you don't get burned out in your serving, forgetting who God truly is, just to love God with our entire being. And from loving God, we are called then to love others. 
This was not a new command. As Jesus says, love your neighbor as yourself. This comes from Leviticus 19, 18. The Jews in the room would have been familiar with this phrase as well. We love God and then we love our neighbor as ourself. Now, this is so important that in Romans 13, 9, Paul is actually going to say the entire law can be summarized in, in the way that you love other people. Because you only love other people as Christ loved you if you truly understand the love of God. Not only that, 1 John 4, 10 and 11 shows that our love for others is a response to God's love for us. It says, in this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. If we ever have a difficult time loving other people, it is because we have a small or blurry view of the way that God has loved us. You see, loving others is one of the greatest ways that we can make the gospel known to the world. In 2017, uh, the Surgeon General said that the invisible epidemic of our age is loneliness. We live in a world that is disconnected. In an article written by the New York Times in July of last year, uh, research was done that, that showed that most people, the average American, has replaced face-to-face -face contact with 60 minutes of screen time each day, and that we're actually spending less time with people, and thus loving people less. Now, what better way can the church show to the world that, that God is a God of love than to love one another, than to stand out in a culture that, that is becoming more and more lonely and more and more disconnected, than to show that because of our connection with God, we have a community among one another. And so what does it look like to love one another well? It is to know one another, to know one another's names, to know about one another's lives. And I know that sometimes that can even feel like small talk or shallow conversation, but it is in perhaps the shallow conversation that you can get into the deep things of someone's heart, to know how to pray for them, how to care for them. So we aim to know one another, to pray for one another, to encourage one another. Encourage your MC leader or people that you see growing in the faith. Be an encouragement to one another. Have courage. Uh, to confront one another lovingly, recognizing that often we have a plank in our own eye whenever we, whenever we seek to come alongside a brother or sister in sin, and yet we know that we all have blind spots, and we need someone to say something before we could potentially wreck our lives. So we love one another by confronting sin, uh, by serving one another. We serve, on, serve teams in our church. We serve whenever we hear needs in our church uh, by being generous with one another by suffering alongside one another. We practice the ministry of presence, of listening to people, asking how we can pray for people, feeling their pain and pointing them to the promises of God. We, we love one another by worshiping together. It is an encouragement to gather in this room and to look around, knowing the various things that are going on in people's lives whenever we sing about who God is. We worship together. We repent to one another whenever we sin against each other. We do this often, right? Recognizing that none of us are perfect people. And we point one another to God's grace, repenting to one another. We grow alongside one another. We live on mission together. Uh, we look around Cincinnati and the world and recognize that we have a great message to offer. And we link arms 
to make God known. And we exercise patience and humility toward one another. We love God and we love others because he first loved us. And this gets to the third and final thing I want you to see in this passage. The way that you respond to these commands reveals if you are in or out of God's kingdom. The way that you respond to these commands reveals the way that you are in or out of God's kingdom. You see in verse 32, the scribe replies and he says, you are right, teacher. He agrees with what he says. You've truly said that he is one and there is no other besides him. And to love him with all the heart and with all the understanding, with all the strength, and to love one's neighbor as oneself is much more than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. He's saying it is more important to be obedient to God than to just practice religious rituals apart from knowing who God is. Lest we think that this is just new language from the New Testament, in 1 Samuel 15, 22, and several other places, the same idea is repeated. Samuel replied, whenever he's talking to Saul, he says, does the Lord delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as much as obeying to the Lord? To obey is better than sacrifice, and to heed is better than that of rams. Through obedience, we love God. The idea of offering our entire life as a whole burnt offering, a sacrifice to God, is so essential to the Christian life that whenever Paul was writing to the church in Rome in chapter 12, he says this, by the mercies of God, present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. What does it mean to love God? It is to offer ourselves to him by loving him and by loving others. And so this man agrees with Jesus and Jesus responds and he says, you are not far from the kingdom. You are close to the kingdom of God in agreeing with these things. And what does it mean to be a part of the kingdom of God? It is to come under the rule of Christ and recognizing who he is as Lord. You see, this man was a scribe. He was a teacher of the law. He asked the right questions, and he even agreed with the right answers. And yet he was called close to the kingdom of God and yet not in the kingdom of God. How could that be? It's because he had not yet crossed the line of faith. He had not yet fully believed in who Christ was. Could it be here that we're getting a snapshot of this man's conversion story? That this was a part of his path in placing his faith fully in Jesus. You see, it is one thing to hear these commands. And it is another thing to come before God and say, I can never keep these commands on my own. I can never fully love you as as you deserve to be loved, God. I can never love others as you have called me to love others. And that is where the glorious good news of the gospel comes to bear on our souls. That Christ, the second person of the Trinity, the Son of God, took on flesh to obey in everywhere that we had ever failed and would ever fail. That he would be perfectly righteous and that on the cross he would absorb the penalty for our sins, that he would take it fully upon himself, and that in his death and in his resurrection, for all who would call upon him, repent of their sins, and trust in him, he would bestow his perfect record of righteousness to us, that whenever we repent of our sins and place our faith in Christ, we become righteous. And then maybe you're thinking, okay, well, okay, so so that deals with my past sin, 
that deals with giving me a, a new record of righteousness. But what hope do I have now for ever being able to obey these commands to love God and to love others? And that is where Christ gives the gift of the Holy Spirit. The third person of the Trinity takes up residence within us. There was a promise made through the prophet Ezekiel and through Jeremiah in which God said that one day the law that is written on tablets of stone will be written in your heart. As Paul said to the church in Corinth, you are made a new creation. As Ezekiel said in chapter 36, that he would sprinkle clean water on you. You would be purified. Your affections would be changed because the Holy Spirit would be given to you. What is the hope of the Christian life for loving God and loving others? The fact that God now dwells within us and enables us to love him because Christ laid down his life for us. He purchased us, makes us a new creation now that we can love God. We can love others well because he first loved us. Let's pray.